Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is a question and answer session from our July 2019 seminar at Elevate Barbell in Fort Collins, Colorado. Now, I know what you're thinking, Jordan, why is there no YouTube video accompanying this podcast? Usually, uh, you put up a video of the Q&As. Well, I lost a memory card. And uh, unfortunately, it also had uh, part of our Berlin Q&A uh, seminar on there as well, although we were running two cameras in Berlin, so that should be fine, even though we were effectively filming in the dark. This Q&A is pretty unique in that uh, there are some topics we haven't really covered on any of our other Q&As uh, or podcasts before, so hopefully you guys enjoy. And without any further ado, let's jump into it. Welcome back for the Q&A here at Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks if you're watching on YouTube, if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcasts, wherever you get those things from. We're going to answer some questions. All right. Do you want to start? Yeah. Oh, I mean, just... uh, if you have to leave, we understand. Uh, not you at home because you don't have anything to do. You're watching this on YouTube. Uh, if your question is not answered, feel free to post on our forum. We're pretty active there. And uh, occasionally you get some Easter eggs with really long explanations. Yeah, yeah, we just curated some for this particular Q&A and also to keep things as timely as, as we can while we're here. So we had picked a subset of the ones that we got. Uh, but yeah, all right, ready? I'm ready. Okay. Uh, does competition drive training or does training need to ultimately manifest in competition? I'm particularly interested in what you would deem the most negative effects or costs of competition to the individual. Okay, you wanna start? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think that after hearing the programming lecture, you may have a little bit more uh, of an understanding of what we would think about this, right? So does training, does competition need to drive training or does training need to manifest in competition? No, nobody has to compete, Yeah. right? You can compete. Some people like it. Or yeah. not. Yeah, you can compete or not, and it's, and it's perfectly okay. If that's something you really enjoy doing, um, or if that would get, that's what gets you going, that's what gets you adherent to training, that's what motivates you, that's part of your social group, maybe you train with a group of competitive lifters and that keeps you at it, then that's awesome. Or if you want something, sometimes people like, like a time deadline for goals, like he was mentioning, maybe you need to hit a weight class by a certain goal, maybe you wanna hit a per certain performance by a certain time, that's all good. But if your choice is, not, is to not compete, and you simply want to train for health purposes, that's totally fine. There's, there's no reason why you, you, know, you must enter a meet and go and, and compete. It's just personal preference and enjoyment. You can get all the health benefits possible out of this stuff without ever entering a meet or competing. Yeah, uh, and I think you know, some of this probably stems from the idea that if you sign up for a competition, you sign up for a meet, then you know, your training all of a sudden gets taken to another level, like for instance, because it's more important to you now. I mean, I think that if that in- improves your adherence, then okay, I, I can buy into that. If that improves your ability to push yourself, I buy that less only because I don't think that that matters, particularly with respect to health outcomes. With respect to performance outcomes, sure, but with respect to health outcomes, I don't think that matters at all. I think adherence is gonna be the number one deal there, so. Meaning that like, if it made you train harder so that you got to squat 365 versus 345, we have a hard time making a case that you're gonna be healthier. Yeah, even 315 versus yeah, 365. Exactly. You know, 275 versus 365. I mean, we can't, really, we can't make that case. Yeah, I can't. I can only make cases against that. Um, so, if I think if you enjoy this community and you value your training and you think that you want to like coach people at some point, then 
sign up for a competition could be really, really valuable from both like a learning standpoint and then also uh, from like a networking standpoint. Um, and I think that can be very, very useful. Also like asserting yourself as somebody who's very experienced in this field, you know, you gotta start somewhere and competition usually yeah. helps that. But from a health standpoint, I don't care about this at all. Yep. Okay. Have you looked into being part of CrossFit's continuing education unit, uh, units? Con what? Continuing education units. Meaning, have we looked into getting our stuff accredited by CrossFit to give uh, their people CEUs? Yeah, uh, we did. The problem with CrossFit, particularly the CrossFit health thing, is they're associated with so many quacks that it would ultimately hurt our reputation to affiliate with them on a professional level. Uh, we went to the level one MD thing in Hawaii last year, and Glassman was a big fan of barbell medicine. Uh, you know, he said, oh, it's a barbell medicine guys, and a bunch of hugs. And Austin was like, what? <laughs> I saw you hug back though. It's fine. Uh, in any event, but yeah, the people who they're putting in positions of power or giving all the, this big platform to um, are people who are super polarizing and ultimately are not supporting the evidence base that we currently have. And I don't think that we can affiliate with that in good conscience, in good faith. Um, ultimately, I also think that's going to limit their how effective they are at pushing these things. Because in reality, we want similar things. We want more people exercising, more people advocating for their own health, taking uh, lifestyle or making lifestyle changes in order to achieve uh, or pursue at least improved health. Yet they're effectively painting themselves into a corner with people like Dr. Fung and Tobbs and, you know, yeah. a lot of, a lot of conspiracy theorists and kind yeah. of anti, anti-scientific people, people who think that every, every researcher or every kind of, uh, medical organization is, is, uh, corrupted by Coca-Cola and stuff like that, that, yeah, we're not interested in, in signing on to that kind of stuff. So that being said, can CEUs, continuing education units, continuing medical education is super important to us. So we're pursuing multiple different avenues right now, like with the ACP, uh, and ACGME, and then a couple other different ways that we can offer uh, CMEs to physicians because we think ultimately, you know, if we're thinking about this from like a guerrilla tact like level, you know, sort of operation, um, we, more doctors and healthcare professionals we get on board, uh, the better we can do in the short term. Long term, we're gonna need, um, you know, a bigger, a bigger presence nationally, but I think we have to start somewhere. And so yeah. bring your doc friends, yes. send them this video. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, question number three, how often do you address or screen for uh, REDS with clients? Do you use the IOC's recommended screen or something else? Yeah, so this is REDS, R-E-D-S, so this stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. This is kind of a more modern acronym that has been proposed to describe what was traditionally known as the quote-unquote female athlete triad. Uh, for, for, you know, f generally female athletes who participated in extremely high, you know, training volumes. Um, and the IOC looked at this and they suggested that maybe this happens to males as well in certain contexts. And so they said, let's make it less specific than a female athlete triad. Let's call it relative energy deficiency in sport. Traditionally, the female athlete triad was characterized by energy kind of insufficiency or en uh, uh, insufficiency in energy intake, calorie, calorie intake. Uh, as well as low bone mineral density and menstrual disturbances. For example, having you know, fewer than normal menstrual periods throughout the course of a year, having things like uh, stress fractures in the course of their training, and having really low BMIs, like 17.5 or less BMI. 
Um, those would be hallmarks of what was traditionally known as the female athlete triad. And again, more recently, they've suggested that maybe this happens to males as well. So they said, let's make it less sex specific and let's call it a relative energy deficiency in sport for, to include the male athletes to whom this, this may happen. And this is actually surprisingly a bit controversial. So there's a few papers on this by, uh, by Mary Jane D'Souza, most recently published in 2014, who were kind of like challenging this. They're saying like the science of relative energy deficiency among males is like in its infancy. Like we, we know very little about this and the extent to which it's a real problem. Whereas more of the information on female athlete triad is much better established. We've had a longer history of understanding, observing, and, and managing this situation. Um, so there's a bit of back and forth on that. And so for, for anybody who's interested in the topic of whether it be female athlete triad or the, the, the relative energy deficiency in sport, this, these papers by D'Souza in 2014 in the British Medical Journal, um, as well as the IOC papers, they're, both, they're all worth reading to get a sense of where the consensus is or where the discussion, the debate is. I'll say that from our standpoint in our quote unquote practice from a coaching standpoint, um, for people who are coming in as lifters, I think that we do not see that particularly frequently. Um, we don't routinely screen for it, although if I had a client who, who showed up and they had you know, a very, very low BMI, that's something that would definitely get my attention if somebody's BMI was you know, sub 18, that's gonna get my attention to start looking for things like a female athlete triad or relative energy deficiency, I suppose, if it was a, if it was a male, and looking for things like eating disorders and things like that and addressing them, but in general, the sport or people who train with barbells and generally uh, not a super common thing among them, whereas we see it with higher frequency in other sports that really we don't tend to attract that niche into you know, our coaching. So I don't know if you've seen more of it or any of it because I haven't. No, uh, but yeah, our screening tool basically is the BMI because anytime that somebody goes less than 18.5, I'm automatically like yeah. more curious. Yeah. Um, other than that, yeah, I don't see, and I don't actually have an opinion on this. But my only opinion is based on the relative energy deficiency syndrome in men. Um, I have read actually some of the literature and it, I'm not yet convinced, but the male hypogonadism uh, sort of uh, arm to that is super fascinating because you're, they're unsure if it's an energy deficit or if it's the functional hypogonadism from a bunch of training, like acute training stress, but even the Sort of hard, be hard, that'd be hard to separate out. Yes, and the clinical effect though is still like kind of un, it's still its infancy, so it's just interesting. But I don't, yeah, I don't have any firm opinion yeah. because I'm not the expert. Our answer is generally a shrug. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh, I like this question. Yeah, I put this one in there for you. Thank you, man. What is Barbell Medicine's plan for world domination? What is the ultimate vision, and what is Barbell's role in achieving it? The idea is again to bring modern medicine, strength conditioning together, and then also uh, make that accessible to both healthcare professionals and general public alike, uh, mainly as science arbiters. Our opinion, uh, our idea is not to have these strong like political opinions or policy opinions and like be, be polarizing, but it's to provide information in an informational and hopefully entertaining way. Again, well, because the idea is it's like Bill, not a science guy, but for strength training, you know. Uh, get more bigger, a bigger sphere of influence that way. So what are we doing about it? Well, we have the seminar going on. The idea is to get this accredited for CMEs and then also have our e, uh, a bunch of e-education offerings that are also will be worth CMEs and CEUs. So on pain, on nutrition, on coaching, all of that stuff. Uh, we also are, we offer a lot of free information as far as like how you should train or how you should, our new nutrition template that we're also gonna have a free version of like how to start uh, you know, on this healthy eating plan, basically making resources available for both people in gen pop and healthcare professionals alike. Uh, we like doing that. And then uh, I don't know, big, like even bigger picture than that. Like I don't, I don't necessarily see us being like 
a part of the exercises medicine sort of like, you know, task force or something like that. But we're, we might end up publishing more stuff in up to date, you know, got the sarcopenia thing coming up. Yeah. And I'm involved. I'm going to be getting, I'm already involved in, in some research, going to be getting involved in more research in uh, the coming year, I anticipate. And yeah, I mean, I think that most of it is going to be communication of practitioners and, and educating this on the, them on this stuff. And particularly on like on the pain side, my goal is to get people to start doing less harm to, to patients, right, with this stuff. Because I know that the way the system is set up, the way the incentives are aligned, it's going to be difficult for me to completely overhaul people's practice in the real world when they have 15 minute appointments. But if I can get them to stop saying stupid shit to their patients, then in general, that's a big win for me from like a pain standpoint because of how prevalent and how disabling of a condition that can be then from a health promotion standpoint definitely communication and doing less harm from that you know so that doctors aren't telling patients that you know strength training is bad for them or bad for their joints or it's gonna you know it's gonna harm them in some way um, those are all the first initial steps first that it's not harmful and then maybe we can take the next step and get them more uh, more regularly actively recommending it the biggest barrier we're going to run into, again, from a public health standpoint, is socioeconomic barriers, I think, that a lot of this stuff is are things that require access to certain things that some patient groups don't necessarily have from socioeconomic and an educational standpoint. That's the biggest barrier, and that's something that is we're not going to be able to do by ourselves, I don't think, right? So a lot of the stuff we can, we can recommend, but then, you know, some of the patients that, particularly the patients I saw, like our county hospital and residency, they're like people who, they can't read. You know, so how do we get them, you know, squatting a set of five at RPE eight and figuring that out? That ain't gonna happen. So we're trying to be realistic about the, the strata, the kind of the, the social strata that we can get on board with this stuff and then try to expand it from there as, as possible rather than trying to bite off way more than we can chew and go out there and expect to just change the world by ourselves because that's unrealistic. We got a book. Eventually there'll be a book. Plus the app. That too. Yeah. Things are coming. They're coming. All right. Uh, what are your thoughts on the utilization of opioids for pain management in acute injury post-operative situations? Oh, there's actually pretty good data on this. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting data on this. So, you know, acute injury is a big, big category, right? It could be something like a back tweak in the gym, tendinopathy could, you know, it can be precipitated pretty acutely, or you could have an open fracture or something like that it might be a different, a different deal. And you could show up to the hospital with, you know, with, with this sort of a fracture and in the acute, hyperacute emergency room setting or something like that. Yeah, they'll probably give you some opioids for that. Um, and same for, for various peri or post-operative uh, sort of scenarios. The, one of the main people that I look to in this arena for you know, evidence-based information is, a, I think he was a Canadian uh, uh, internist and toxicologist. His name is David Yurlink, J-U-U-R-L-I-N-K. Um, he is big in this world of opioids, appropriate opioid prescription, discontinuation, tapering, um, and, and things like that. And so he's, he's been involved in some research as well. And there actually is a lot of data on, you know, among patients who are prescribed opioids after, uh, after a surgery, for example, even if it's a short course that they're initially prescribed after the surgery, um, there is not, there's a not insignificant proportion of individuals who, if you follow up with them a year later, they're still on opioid pain medications. Somewhere on average, about 10% of patients who are prescribed opioids in the peri or post-operative setting are still on opioids a year later. It's a problem. That's a problem. Every day of opioid prescription that they receive increases their risk of still being on opioids a year later. And so, you know, we're not here to take a rigid anti-opioid stance. There are certainly situations where they are, you know, very beneficial and can be used to alleviate suffering among patients. But ongoing uh, standing outpatient prescriptions, especially for the management of chronic musculoskeletal pain conditions, uh, generally does more harm than good. 
Um, there's uh, a bunch of negative consequences. Um, I mean, even as recently as we were in medical school, we were being taught things like, you know, opioids uh, prescription for uh, treating pain is uh, not addictive. That was not that long ago that we were being taught that stuff. And uh, yeah, so that was not correct. Um, and there are tons and tons and tons of problems associated with it. So, so cautious prescribing is very important in general. You know, I primarily function in an inpatient setting. So most of the patients that I'm dealing with who require outpatient opioids might be patients who have cancer or on hospice, things like that. Um, but acute injuries and perioperative situations, I really try to minimize and avoid that as much as possible. Fortunately, there's a huge uh, issue with the so-called pharmaceuticalization. That might be the most syllables I've packed into one word this weekend. Of uh, there's actually a paper by that title, pharmaceuticalization of, uh, of of pain, to where that's like almost the only only solution we can think of to treat pain uh, conditions, and that's a big problem. Um, so hopefully, with some of the information you guys have taken forward uh, from the pain lecture this weekend, you can help to understand how big of a problem this is and, and what sort of alternative strategies we can take as a society, as a culture, to deal with this stuff because. Um, it's a major, major issue. You know, people in this country, you undergo even a simple, minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery and the expectation is that you're gonna need a bunch of opioids afterwards. Whereas, you know, a story I commonly tell is my wife did a, did a mission trip down to Central America, did a bunch of like open laparotomies on patients, like actually filleted them open and did some gynecologic procedures on them. And these patients down there who were so, you know, uh, uh, unexposed to the healthcare system and ungrateful uh, for the care, they got a dose of Tylenol perioperatively and they said that their pain was perfectly controlled and they felt comfortable. There's a huge cultural societal influence on the experience of pain. And so we are trying to not feed into that, make that problem worse, uh, but it's very challenging. So we're trying to start to make waves and, uh, and kind of induce a, something of a ripple effect here. Every, again, every day of, that, of uh, opioids that you get in a post-operative setting increases your risk of still being on them a year later. And being on them a year later itself is a, it's a bad thing in general. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, for most cases. Yep. I don't have anything else to add there. All right. All right. Uh, any thoughts to using your nutrition assessment management model with women with PCOS? These are my toughest weight loss patients and success with them has been abysmal. Yeah, it's a tough situation. Um, I actually do like the model, the assessment model and management model um, and have used it. I've actually had what I feel like is a greater than normal share of uh, women with PCOS that I've worked with. Um, actually, my experience with it is the hardest part is kind of sifting through what I would call the woo there's a lot of woo out there like, oh, let's do seed cycling or let's go gluten-free or let's do this or that other is intervention that doesn't necessarily have great or any evidence on it, but somebody posted it on social media or has a blog, a PCOS blog. And you know, I, so I, I think um, my biggest lessons that I've learned from this is that women with PCOS have an above average need for support just in general, um, like a community that they get to interact with and soundboard off of. Um, that being said, a lot of those communities are not necessarily in, uh, that are available when people like seek them out on their own accord are not affiliated with doctors or RDs or like other people who are like super evidence-based. And so you get into this sort of these conversations, especially on the internet where somebody's like, yeah, and this week I decided to cycle my almonds with flax seeds. And you're like, okay. You know, like, is that good? And I'm like, mm -hmm. like, I don't know. And because you go and, and then you, you know, you end up learning more and that's good. Uh, my gestalt is that a lot of that stuff though is woo and people will uh, kind of get hung up on that rather than the calorie deficit. 
Um, whereas the data on PCOS is really, really good for in, uh, losing weight five to 15%, like has a really robust improvement uh, in symptoms, quality of life and everything else. I think if somebody who's asking this question or uh, who has a, a client like this is in the same boat and you're not seeing the results that you'd like to see, then the medication route is definitely something uh, to, uh, to consider, mainly because the contraindications for other obesity-related diseases like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, uh, for instance, like asthma and um, uh, hypertension and uh, cardiovascular disease and that, all those other things have way more contraindications to using um, those medications than PCOS. PCOS, effectively, uh, you can use a lot of those, uh, the weight loss medications, and people tend to do really, really well with them. The data on it is, is pretty good. And I, I find that it's underutilized in that population group in particular, because people just think, no, you just need to try harder. You need more willpower. And it's, you know, again, it's, if, the, if, the, if the advice was good and they, you, know, you give them a, a college try with the adherence and they just they can't do it, you know, whatever, it's not a personal failing. There's just other th factors at play. And the medication can be super useful at that point. And, it, and that helps correct the underlying uh, issue there. So I don't know if you have anything else to add there. No. I just, I haven't, I've actually had like some pretty good success there. And I, that being said, I don't feel like I'm a PCOS expert. Yeah. I just know that I've dealt with the, Above average, nor, uh, above average amount of the BS that's associated with that disease. And so my recommendation is if you have PCOS, like don't go on the blogs, don't go on social media and search out, you know, PCOS pages that are run by non-healthcare professionals because you're likely to get some bad advice or worse than that, get nociboed and you don't want that. Rather, I would work closely with your doctor and their uh, dietetic staff and see if you're a candidate, you know, what sort of nutritional recommendations are you a candidate for? Are you a candidate for medication if you've tried uh, weight loss with lifestyle modifications and haven't been successful? You know, there are other options, what I'm getting at. Okay. Do you think just overall, like, weight loss medications are underutilized? Yes. Yeah, I yes. Very much. You think um, I think a lot of primary care doctors are uncomfortable prescribing them. And really, I mean, I can understand why if you've never used something before, if you weren't trained in, you know, in them when you were, when you were in training, which actually applied to me. And that, but really, when you go through and you do some self-learning about these things and you realize that they're relatively safe as long as you can recognize when you shouldn't use them in certain patient groups, um, I got pretty comfortable using them pretty quick. Yeah. 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 I think and I've used them with, you know, some patients respond very well to them, others who haven't responded quite as well, but that's... The normal things, you know, that's the norm. That's the very the, the typical nature of, of humans in response to any intervention is a, is a variety of, of responses. So, one patient in particular who came to one of our prior seminars uh, afterwards, he was very interested in this, and so we started him on uh, bupropion naltrexone, which is the brand name of uh, of Contrave. And basically, he found that as soon as he started that, he was like, adhering to this calorie deficit is now the easiest thing. Like, I'm having no difficulty adhering to this. Not a problem at all. And there's likely to be a component of real medication effect as well as some component of a placebo type effect. Are we okay with that in this situation? Hell yes, we're okay with that in this situation. He promptly lost 20 pounds uh, and, and a number of factors related to his lifestyle and, his, and, and what he was uh, experiencing got much better, um, which was great. I've had other patients I've used lyroglutide, injectable lyroglutide with. 
fentramine topiramate. Uh, these are some of the, the, the most effective, the, probably the big three most effective ones are those, are those three medications. We use all three of them with patients, and, and many of them have had success. I've not prescribed Orlistat and probably wouldn't. Um, and fentramine alone, I don't tend to, don't tend to use either. Um, so usually it's one of the combo medications or injectable glutide, especially when somebody has, uh, has diabetes. That's a, that's a great option. So yeah. One of the ways I like to think about that particular issue, uh, like there's a known risk to continuing to be carrying too much body fat and like having poorly managed PCOS. Sure. Like there are no, those are known risks. Uh, and there are also no, uh, uh, known risks to these medications. And so when you just compare those risks on balance, like the risks from being obese or carrying too much body fat far surpass. Yeah. And even if there are situations where you shouldn't prescribe a particular medication, there's often an alternative. So, you know, one example was a patient I had who had gastroparesis, which can be a complication of diabetes where your stomach doesn't tend to, you know, move food and things along quite as well. And so one of the medications that would have been an option for us suddenly became not a great option for us. Um, and so I said, I'm not gonna use glutide with you because I think that might make this problem worse and fortunately I have another option, something else I can use, so yeah. All right, uh, please give your opinion, thoughts on time frame of resolution, return to normal function of moderate to severe uh, herniated nucleus pulposus with mild non-emergent or operative radicular symptoms, i.e. sensory changes, mild weakness. In short, do you wanna, yeah, translate this question for people? <laughs> Please give your thoughts on time frame of resolution of a herniated disc yeah. with mild nerve symptoms, like sensory changes. Radiculopathy, quote unquote, weakness. sciatica. Right. So in general, the prognosis of this is quite good for acute, what we call a quote unquote, acute lumbosacral radiculopathy. The prognosis is generally thought to be quite good. Um, the majority of patients experience resolution of symptoms within the first few months, which is good news and a good expectation to set for people that the majority get better within the first few months. Um, some of the data I cited in the pain lecture had to do with the incidence of spontaneous resolution or resorption based on imaging of these things. Now, of course, we know that the correlation between the imaging findings and the symptoms is not great, but this is also another piece of good news that I might deliver to try to sell patients on this idea that, hey, you're likely to get better uh, because uh, upwards of two-thirds of these things heal on their own. The worse the herniation, the better they tend to do. Data on this come from Zong, Z-H-O-N-G, uh, in 2017, and Chu, C-H-I-U, in 2014. Um, where they found that the majority of spontaneous resolutions of these disc herniations tends to occur within the first year. Um, so they did systematic reviews of large numbers of studies, large numbers of data sets, and those ranged in as short as a couple months, upwards of 20 to 30 months. So there's a big range of timeframes that they looked at when they collated this evidence together. Uh, but a really substantial proportion of these things heal on their own, which can be a good thing to convince patients who are having a really hard time understanding the poor correlation between imaging findings and symptoms. You can say, well, the chances are this is gonna, what we see on the MRI is likely to heal in a few months anyway, which is a really good thing. Even independent of the MRI findings or imaging findings, because frequently there's no reason to re-image these people later on to get scans again after they get better. Usually there's no reason to do that. Uh, but again, the majority of people tend to get better on their own. And some of the best places we have, uh, sources of evidence we have for this is actually from uh, placebo-controlled studies. You look at the placebo arm in the study. So say um, you, you have a placebo-controlled study of like NSAIDs, like ibuprofen or, 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 uh, or naproxen in a patient with a herniated disc, comparing it to placebo, and you see how the placebo group does after a few months, and upwards of 70% or more of patients even in the, who are taking placebo uh, are doing much better you know, have, have had symptomatic resolution by three months, which is pretty good news. So in general, that's how I try to frame things is that uh, prognosis is very good. Our goal is to try to maintain as much normal activity as we can tolerate, work through tolerable symptoms, 
uh, and as things improve, to be able to ramp that activity up uh, uh, from there. The uh, most common thing that we run into is people who are experiencing pain who view the pain or view exacerbations of pain as evidence of active harm. Right? And so that's where we try to have to work against that narrative of hurt does not, or the, the idea that hurt does not equal harm. That's kind of the message we're trying to deliver, right? Just because your pain symptoms transiently got worse doesn't mean that you actively did more damage to your body. So if you can get people to understand that hurt does not equal harm, get them a little more pain, self-efficacy, willingness to engage in activities, even when they're having a little bit of discomfort, that's a really, really good prognostic sign that they're likely to get better and return to their normal activities. All right, so here's the question, Dr. B. You're adding questions to the Q&A? May I call you Dr. B? Sure. All right. So let's say you have a person send you a DM, because this is how it happens. I just got an X-ray or an MRI, uh, and a doctor says I have a herniated L5-S1. I've had mild numbness and tingling in my right leg. What do? Yeah. So because I, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to convey, because people ask this all or some permutation of this question all the time, like, I shouldn't be training, right? And I'm like, no, you absolutely should be training. They're like, well, but definitely not deadlifts, right? And you're like, well, if you want to do deadlifts, if you're okay with doing deadlifts, if you're not too afraid to do the deadlifts, because if you can't, then I'm gonna put you to a mid-chin rack pull. And if you can't do a mid-chin rack pull, then I'm gonna have you do above knee rack pull. And if you can't do that, I'm gonna have you do some other exercise that's similar to a deadlift. And if you can't do any deadlifts, all right, well, fine. I'm gonna have you do a leg press or squat, you know, something. Yeah. So remember, I mean, this comes down to what I recommended during the pain lecture as the hallmarks of therapies that are most likely to be effective. Right, so remember the, the, the characteristics of those. Number one, likely to address unhelpful thoughts and fears about the meaning of pain. So if their interpretation of the meaning of any of these symptoms is that they're actively doing damage, that's something that you have to work against, right? So that's the idea of this, hurt does not equal harm. So reframing the experience. Number two is introducing appropriately dosed movement in a non-threatening context, meaning you have to engage the threatening behavior, but again, putting it in the appropriate context for the individual. That might mean if they're mortified to bend over, yeah, we need to get them gradually bending over. You need to work into that, that, that threatening activity. Again, framing this all in the context of, hey, your prognosis is very good. This is likely to get better within the first few months here. Of course, you have to be careful about how confidently you phrase that because then what may happen is if they're in the group that don't get better within the first few months, then suddenly what's the logical conclusion that they have in their head? Oh, well, I didn't get better within the first few months. This might, must be a really severe case and I'm probably never gonna get better. Right? So that's why close follow-up and actively having these conversations with individuals over time is really, really important. Right? Because people really, I mean, it makes sense why they would draw these kind of conclusions. So like, I've been to a doctor, a chiro, a PT, a surgeon, and I'm still, nobody can tell me what's going on or still nobody can fix me. I must be the worst case they've ever seen. Or a surgeon told me my x-ray was the worst x-ray they ever saw. That's like terrible things to tell people. Right? So the narratives are super important. Engage in activity, super important. And that's what, we're, that's what we're generally recommending. Engaging in activity tolerance, dosing it carefully. This doesn't mean your patient with new onset acute lumbosacral radiculopathy, you program them to go pull you know, five at 10 for three sets across or something like that. Sure. That would be silly. Well, Dose matters. Yeah, but, if you, but let's just say that you did. The, the harm, what, I'm, what I think the major take home is that that, while that's not a smart way to like help somebody get better, yeah. get them returned to normal activity without pain, you're not actively doing harm to the person, most likely. If you're telling them to maintain Correct. activity. Probably yeah. not. Yeah. In fact, you probably just say, actually, you're fine. Yeah. But they might want a little bit more for the explanation. Yeah. Most people don't who respond. who knows what they've been told by other people. Yeah, most people don't respond to that. Actually, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> I just tell people it's all in their head. They find that very dismissive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It turns out. Okay, a friend of mine has an ileostomy bag. 
Are there any concerns or recommendations for barbell training for people with ostomy bags or similar medical devices and or medical procedures? That's actually an interesting question. I've never trained somebody with an ostomy. Um, I've only trained people with like type one diabetic with pumps, uh, but no, but no, and then like implantable like uh, uh, cardioverters and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, when you say similar medical devices and medical only, procedures, that's, there's a only rather, one. that's a rather large category yeah. <laughs> of things that people can have had done to them. Yeah, I've coached some people in person who had ostomy bags, and I didn't do anything special or different for them. Yeah, I wouldn't have done anything different. I mean, the belt, wearing a belt would be maybe interesting, I guess, depending on. <laughs> that's fair. Yes. I didn't have them strap down a belt over their ostomy site. Yeah, would it go over or under? Well, there's a yeah, hole in their skin in a bag. You just go <laughs> over the bag. Oh, you mean physics superior yeah. or inferior? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It depends. It depends where they placed it. Yeah. And I know we were saying this in a lighthearted way. It's just not something that I would make a special management decision about other than like, again, where does the belt go? Because the question would be, do they need to do different exercises? Nope. I have no reason to believe that. Do they yep. need to do more or fewer sets? No reason to believe that. Not more or fewer reps? No Man. reason to believe that. Higher or lower intensity? No reason to believe that. So yeah, I train them like normal people. We assume that they're gonna be in the middle just like everybody else, right? Yeah, maybe they're the freaks. And again, well, with other bad. sorts of medical devices or procedures, that is going to still be a case-by-case -case thing. You know, there's some situations if somebody has a, you know, somebody has a, a, a pacer or an ICD in their chest, and you're going to ask them to bench press. And theoretically, I wouldn't bring them, want them bringing down a touch-and-go bench press and smashing down on the on the ICD or the pacemaker site repeatedly uh, every rep. The they theoretically, do. usually those are placed a little bit higher than I would have most people touch on the bench press. If I think about it, knowing where they tend to put these things, tend to be a little bit higher. So but still, you know, I'm just going to. Just going to pay attention to where that was placed and make sure it's not getting smashed by the bar when they when they do their benches. But again, case by case, depending on the procedure or the device, it kind of depends. I have to do a board press. Board, sure. Yeah, pin, floor press, pin, pin press. Pin press. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are there any recommendations from the barbell medicine team to help physicians, PTs, chiropractors, coaches, etc.? That's a big question. <laughs> Huge question. <laughs> yeah. Like with what? Like with beard lineups or like, we're talking about this information. Uh, so as discussed, there are many medical coaching professionals that may or may not be aligned with our recently acquired knowledge. All right. So actually this is similar to a question we answered in Philadelphia. You remember it was like, oh, if you could uh, have your, our colleagues know like one set of recommendations or one thing, like what would it be? And your thing was the pain lecture, yours was the current, the guidelines, uh, I forgot which ones you actually recommended that people would be familiar with. Yeah, okay. And mine would be the AAC obesity guidelines, um, and then also the current, the 2018 physical activity guidelines for Americans. Those three things pretty much summarize the weekend here, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, so effectively, so let's say that you're a coach, Cairo, PT, doctor, whatever, and you're watching this online, and you made it this far, and you haven't turned us off. Thanks. And then you're like, well, how do I get up to speed? Okay, well, uh, first, I would read the American Academy of Clinical Endocrinology's uh, gui uh, guideline on, guidelines on obesity. They were published in 2016, Bray et al. They're available free. You can download them for free. Second thing I would do is download the 2018 Scientific Consensus Statement on Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans. That has all like the supporting literature on physical activity and its effect on outcomes right now. And so I think that would prepare you to not only have these conversations with patients, because it gives you recommendations, but also to have the knowledge base to say, oh, here's how physical activity affects atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, or obesity, et cetera. And the third one would be uh, pain guidelines. And you would have people read what? Pain, explain your pain supercharge from well if you wanted a book that's fine but the biggest thing would be the lancet series on low back pain from 2018. there's a series of articles that the lancet published in the summer of 2018. i think anybody who deals with patients or if you're a coach who deals with patients with low back pain and you feel comfortable reading the biomedical literature uh, that um, 
that Lancet series on low back pain is a must read for anybody who sees people with low back pain. Yeah, I agree. Must read that. Yeah. Is this your computer? Yes. Did you really wear down the A, the E, the S, and the D? Apparently, I must type vowels a lot, you know? All right, next question. <laughs> next question. We're on the last few here. Yeah, right. Uh, what is known about the biological, psychological, sociological, social contributors to pain in patients who have been diagnosed with fibromyalgia? How do you, would you manage these patients? Yep, this is actually a big question, and there is a lot that is known about this. There's also a lot more that is unknown about this. Well, <laughs> I, I think it's been well characterized, but it's say as far as like, you know, I mean, we keep learning new stuff sure. on a regular basis, but I don't know. I wouldn't say that I don't view fibro as one of these like mystical like conditions like chronic fatigue syndrome, for instance. Like I don't put those in the same. You it's do? Close. You do? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We might have a difference of opinion on, sure. on that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's fibromyalgia is this very nebulous syndrome. It's almost a, almost what we call a diagnosis of exclusion in many cases, where it's a syndrome characterized by widespread persistent pain at many sites, and it's frequently accompanied by other symptoms like insomnia and depression, mood, anxiety disorders, things like that. And really, once you rule out a ton of things, then these patients oftentimes end up getting sent because people are clueless. They're like, ah, oh, just go see a rheumatologist, and they'll touch you in a few spots and see if you're tender in a bunch of different weird spots on your body and say you have fibromyalgia and prescribe you a tricyclic antidepressant or something like that because that's what some of the guidelines would suggest uh, but a lot of these pharmacologic interventions in general tend to be pretty not super effective for this condition um, and in fact you know uh, uh, the the european what is this the european league against rheumatism um, I, rev uh, I reviewed some of, the, some of the stuff on this recently, and, the, and their guidelines from 2017, they had a bunch of recommendations. The only strong recommendation they had in their guidelines was for exercise. Yeah, the only strong recommendation they had of all the possible things we can do to people for this condition was exercise, which is great, but what's the biggest problem? Adherence is adherence, because a lot of these patients experience what they perceive to be a, a worsening of their symptoms with exercise, right? So if they exercise and they feel worse, how likely are they to keep doing it? Yeah. I mean, they feel worse in the short term, right? But long term, the best evidence we have at the current time suggests that exercise tends to improve symptoms, quality of life, functional outcomes, but it's just really hard to get people to adhere. So if you're a physician and you're dealing with a patient with this and you're only seeing them once every three months, four months, six months, something like that, you're kind of in a tough spot to get people to adhere if you don't have close, regular follow-up. If you're a coach, if I was working with a client who had fibromyalgia and I was following up with them once a week, then I might have a better shot at identifying barriers and tr trying to help them knock them down day after day. Right? One thing with the exercise prescription that I, that I think would be pretty useful would be an auto-regulation strategy, the use of something like RPE. Right? So they don't walk into the gym and they feel they are required to do something on that day that is beyond their capabilities at that time because the hallmark of this is fluctuating symptoms over time. So an auto-regulated strategy that lets them adjust the training stimulus based on how they're feeling and performing on a given day, I think would be super important. I think close follow-up, being able to see and work with, a, with, a, with, a, with somebody, whether that be a coach or a clinician on a regular basis, is going to be super important, as well as just the, you know, most of what we talked about this weekend is an individualized approach, identifying what the barriers are for this individual and helping them knock down those barriers, giving them skills, tools, and building up self-efficacy. These patients overwhelmingly, super commonly, low self-efficacy. They do not feel that they have the confidence or that they do not have control over the situation. They feel they have learned helplessness is super common, that this happened to them, there's very, very little they can do about it and doctors can't find what's wrong with them, can't fix them. Uh, but again, that's an unrealistic 
uh, kind of expectation for this condition, that somebody is going to be able to have a magic intervention to fix them. So building up self-efficacy, getting them engaged in this behavior, regular follow-up, auto-regulation based on how they're feeling and performing is probably the best thing we have. And again, that's the only strong recommendation that came from those guidelines. There are tons, I mean, the standard thing that most doctors are gonna to prescribe to patients in this situation is various medications, whether that be for sleep, for pain, um, for depression, things like that. But the effect sizes that we see from that kind of thing are relatively small. Yep. So it's tough, it's really hard. Yeah, ACSM's got a position stand on fibro, training fibro as well. And they're like reinforce that strong recommendation to actually do exercise. Yeah. Uh, and also their thing was, I mean, the take home from their paper was like, do, you know, try not to make the, exacerbate these people's pain so yeah. that way they can actually adhere so to So it needs to be dosed carefully. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in the hospital clinic setting, do you feel like there's usually adequate time for patient education counseling? No. <laughs> Definitely oh. not. Next question. Well, I mean, I will say in the, in the hospital setting, yeah, maybe I'm in a, so I primarily, I primarily work in an inpatient setting. I can take as much time as I want with somebody yeah. a lot of the time, which, is, which can be nice. Um, but at the same time, I can take a ton of time with somebody, but again, why are they admitted to the hospital? They're usually admitted to the hospital for something that in the short term, in the immediate setting, takes a higher priority over them getting a handle on their obesity, right? Because I just admitted them for, you know, sepsis, raging pneumonia, heart failure, something like that. They can't breathe. I'm like, yeah, we need to get you to lose some weight and exercise and things like that. It's hard to sell them on when they're in the middle of that crisis, right? So that's, the problem is that that's not the place to have those conversations but I have them anyway with many patients because I'm like, maybe if I talk to enough patients, right, maybe I'll convince one to do it. I wonder what my exercise number needed to treat is. If I, can, if I, if I counsel 50 patients, maybe I can get one to do it. Or something oh, no. Like that, so right? it's, it, Who knows? The, the data on that's far better for well, doctors counseling exercise. In the, in, in the acute inpatient no, setting? So they don't, yeah, they don't, that's what I thought. No, but, I, but what I'm getting at is that like, there's a strong potential for yeah. doctors to like- We can actually them. influence behavior. We just all get jaded too early in, in, you know, in training when we see many patients don't ne not necessarily taking our advice. But um, yeah, I just do it anyway. Yeah. So on the one hand, like, there's this huge potential for doctors to actually positively affect these behavioral changes, particularly with exercise and nutritional interventions. Uh, that's been shown in a number of different studies. Uh, that being said, I can empathize with the doctors who have to see 25 patients a day, and there's just there's not time for this in the outpatient More setting. Yeah. So my recommendation it would be to develop relationships in the community, and and, and you know most like clinics will have an RD in office or an RD that they refer to or have diabetic educator or something. And I think it's also reasonable to have, hey, who's the strength coach or who's the gym that you're referring to? So why not? And if you're in a resource rich setting. Well, sure. But at the, at the same time, it's like, um, you know, one, if you're not talking about this at all, that's a problem. Yeah. And I think if you're looking for like, solutions to the problem you have to identify people in the community who can help you out yep. and uh, you wouldn't even have to pay the person the the trainer or the strength coach or the gym who you're referring to literally you'd say hey look i'm a doctor in the community i have a bunch of patients and all of them need to be exercising more whatever can we get a some sort of referral program like set up uh have your you can't save the that. world by yourself is the point you 100%. need to have you need resources army. you can lean on yeah. yeah yeah and the data again like i said is really strong for doctors actually recommending this so if i had my druthers which is a phrase that people use in some contexts. Um, I'd have most doctors should be strongly recommending, you know, nutritional changes and behavioral changes related to engaging in physical activity, and then referring, boom, go see this person at this gym. We already have this relationship set up. Go do that because I don't think you have the adequate time to actually counsel all for all the contingencies in the office. But you also don't want the person to just give them a pamphlet and say, here, just do this. Yeah, that doesn't work. Right. 
So it'd be, it'd be nicer if the, if the gym was in the clinic. Yeah, just walk down the hall, you know, you got Leah down there and she's uh, about to start squat therapy. So. Not, not. Yes. CrossFit, squat. No, the squat real squat therapy, squat therapy, the one that actually works. <laughs> the story is we were in Hawaii. And so again, Baraki's a very strong squatter, right? 200 pound dude, 625 pound squat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, they have all, you do all this work with PVC pipe, right? And so I, I, we're in different groups. We weren't in the same group. And he's got, they're doing like front squats or whatever. And this guy's yelling at Baraki, more vertical, be more vertical. You have an immature squat, be more vertical. And I, Austin, you know, fighting for this upright position. Uh, Cause he's like, it's PVC. Like, you know, what are we gonna do here? And then they finally put Baraki up against the wall. So he's like facing the wall and squatting directly up and down. You know, squat, he got his squat therapy. It didn't meet their standards. It did not meet their standards. But the interesting part was the guy who was quote unquote coaching you had never squatted 300 in his life. He'd never seen 300 in his life. You mean pounds? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was just an interesting dynamic. But I'll never, I was so happy hearing that. Just so I was like, <laughs> Baraki's getting trolled. He told me that I had a very mature front squat. Yeah. Well, that speaks to his coaching eye. That's what I'm saying. Like, little do you know, I would round really badly with, the, yeah, all right. I think we're on our last two questions. Is that true? Yes. Okay, cool. Can you elaborate on the evidence against steroid injections? Are all types ineffective? Ergo, epidural steroid injections, steroid injections into joints, et cetera. I'll just look, like, I see what you did here, and I'm, I'm just gonna let you do this. Yeah, I recently gave several lectures on this topic. And so, in general, you're gonna have a hard time getting me to say, yes, all versions of this thing are completely ineffective, and be very, very confident with that statement, right? So there are many different places that one can inject steroids or other sorts of substances for musculoskeletal pain conditions. Um, I give a lecture to the program where I work out about back, uh, about back pain to try to educate doctors about this and review the evidence on ster epidural steroid injections for back pain. One of the best resources on this is a paper by Chu, C-H-O-U, and his colleagues in 2015. They reviewed the evidence uh, uh, on steroid, epidural steroid injections or, or facet joint injections for various quote-unquote types of back pain. Again, the extent to which we can identify distinct types of back pain is trickier than we, we think. But so, for example, they reviewed 78 randomized controlled trials of epidural steroid injections for radicular back pain. That's the type of back pain that's associated with radiating pain down the leg, for example. Um, and they found that on average, the pain reduction that patients experienced was about seven and a half points on a scale of zero to 100, right? So, or if you wanna do on a scale of zero to 10, that would be about 0.7 point of pain reduction on a scale of zero to 10 on average for epidural steroid injections for radicular back pain. That was a short-term effect. Their conclusion that they reported from this paper was that effects were below the predefined minimally important thresholds, the, min the, the minimum amount of pain reduction that they would have deemed relevant, it was below that threshold. So basically they concluded that this amount of pain reduction for radicular back pain, the injections was not clinically significant. Um, and there were no long-term benefits associated with these types of injections. They also looked at spinal stenosis. They reviewed eight randomized controlled trials. So you notice there's way less evidence for spinal stenosis injections in the same way that there's very little evidence on surgery for spinal stenosis. Found no evidence for epidural steroid injections versus placebo for, uh, uh, for spinal stenosis. For non-radicular back pain, just non-specific back pain, no evidence for steroid injections versus placebo in that condition. And facet joint steroid injections. Um, for, uh, for nonspecific low back pain or presumably back pain that was thought to be related to facet joint kind of degenerative uh, conditions. 
and they report, I'll quote this, they said, there's no clear differences between various facet joint corticosteroid injections that includes intraarticular within the joint, extraarticular outside the joint, or medial branch. So there's a type of nerve block that they'll do median branch blocks for these sorts of conditions. No difference between any of those and placebo interventions. So any benefit that was observed from these things was attributable to placebo effects, meaning that you didn't actually need to get the steroid injection. People will say, yeah, what made me feel better? What's the harm? Well, about, I think it was about a year, two years ago, there was an outbreak of a bunch of fungal infections uh, that was attributed to spinal uh, steroid injections. So there's some legitimate harm that can happen from these sorts of things. A few brief other situations where steroid injections can happen for tendinopathy, uh, that generates worse outcomes. When you inject steroids into tendinopathic tissues, particularly best evidence on this is in lateral epicondylitis or quote unquote tennis elbow, you inject steroids, patients do worse at a year. Um, so long-term outcomes are, are worse. Would not inject any tendinopathy with steroids, not recommended. For knee osteoarthritis, there is a possible short-term benefit that is relatively small in magnitude, upwards of four weeks, although there's variability in response to that. Some patients get nothing, some patients get better responses. But again, when you compare it to placebo, these effects are not super impressive, uh, not super impressive. Some clinicians, some of the ones that I trained with, for example, they'd say, yeah, I use the injections to get them immediate pain relief so that then they're willing to go to physical therapy. I'm like, yeah, but how often do they end up just continuing to come back Q3 months for more injections? That's not the best way to manage this sort of situation, right? So it's tricky. And the narrative matters. The narrative that you're giving the patient about this intervention matters. Because uh, a lot of times they may just say, yeah, I'm not willing to go to physical therapy. I don't want to do it. I don't want to exercise. Just give me the injection. Um, and there are some potential harms associated with, with this sort of thing. Uh, specifically with respect to like cartilage volume and things like that. But on the other hand, cartilage volume and pain, the correlation there is not great either. So, and the last one would be a rotator cuff uh, or, or subacromial uh, sort of injections for quote unquote subacromial pain syndromes, rotator cuff issues, tendinopathies, things like that. And we reviewed this in our shoulder series that we published on our website published a series of articles on various sorts of shoulder-related pain conditions, including rotator cuff tendinopathies and tears. Uh, and the evidence would suggest, this was a paper by Cook et al. in 2013, they compared steroid injections versus uh, uh, steroid plus anal, uh, analgesic infection, uh, injections versus analgesic alone, so like lidocaine, for example. Found that there may be some short-term benefits, upwards of eight weeks, that are relatively small in their magnitude, but no long-term benefits to these sorts of things. Um, and much smaller with respect to their effect size, how effective they were compared to exercise. So in general, we don't tend to recommend very many steroid injections for most of these conditions. Um, I will not say confidently that I would never recommend it to any patient because I just don't tend to take those sorts of positions on things. But in general, I don't tend to recommend patients pursue them. I don't think they tend to be super efficacious, uh, particularly compared to placebo. The only condition I actually, I thought that I like steroid injections, but I've actually seen more reasonable evidence on is actual carpal tunnel, which, uh, I got introduced to during my elective because I was like, why are you doing this? And he's like, here, Just slam me with papers. And uh, yeah, I haven't looked at the evidence on that. Maybe, yeah. maybe yeah. you're right. Yeah, that, it, it, to me, the, basically it seems similar to the rotator cuff, like small, small short effect, effects. but it was always paired with physical therapy. Yeah. All right. If someone was to expect or suddenly experience an increase in academic stress, is it advised to proactively manage your program uh, to keep overall stress fatigue lower to avoid injuries per the football player study mentioned in the lecture? It's actually a great question. Um, yes and no, <laughs> which is my favorite answer to questions, answer both. Uh, if, it depends on the programming that you're using going into that. So the problem is if your programming has no elements of autoregulation already baked into it, then you have set yourself up for failure in multiple different levels. Basically, 
uh, level number one, your performance is going to wax and wane on a, a daily basis, and so you're not going to get to take advantage of your good days uh, or also have plan B that's also effective towards your training goals on your bad days, right? because you have this more rigid training model that I would not necessarily recommend. Uh, way it fails number two is during periods like this when you your life stress or environmental factors get way, way more stressful, you have no way to adapt your training to that other than say, oh, let's go lighter. Well, what exactly does that mean? And does that still support your long-term goals? Okay, so my overall opinion is that you should have some, uh, some elements of auto-regulation baked into your program from the get-go, in which case you wouldn't really have to adjust things further on the fly. You would have that baked into your program. So for instance, having, using RPE to help you determine your training load takes advantage of days that you're real, real strong and also gives you plan B for days that you're not as strong or you have other things that are competing with your ability to produce force. So let's say for instance that, I don't know, you had to fast for blood work in the morning and then by the time you got home or whatever, your electricity was out, you couldn't make food and then you know all you, had, you went to the, gro to the grocery store, you went to the gas station, you got a protein shake or protein bar and then you went to the gym and you're like, I gotta do my training now because my kids are gonna be home later and I gotta you know, get it in. And you're like, I don't know if I can set a PR squat today. It's like, well, I don't know either. However, if you're using RPE to help determine your load, you get to take advantage of that day if you are, in fact, way, way stronger. Or if you're not performing up to snuff, you have a plan B that also allows you to get the correct amount of stress uh, that you're desiring for that day. Also using session RPE is super, super helpful. So for instance, even if you were using RPE to program all of your weights, but not using session RPE, the problem would be is if at the end of each session you felt wiped, drained, kilt, dead, okay? Then, yeah, kilt, that's a, that's a verb. I kilt him. Then you can run into the problem where you're actually applying too much stress to the individual relative to their current recovery resources, ability to tolerance. Yeah, exactly. So using session RP is something we like to use as well. We think that most of your training sessions should vacillate between RP6 and RP8, give or take. It's kind of squishy. I'll for some yeah, but it shouldn't be 10. It shouldn't be 10, meaning that that session was the hardest thing that I've done. I am completely spent. I am wiped. Um, and alternatively, one way to, cha to change how hard your sessions are is to change how long the sessions are. So let's say you were regularly having three and a half hour marathon training sessions. Yeah, I got five by five squats today and then five by five bench today. And then I got a deadlift afterwards, theoretically. Yeah, hypothetical. Hypothetical. And then it took you three and a half hours, and at the end you're like, this is the hardest thing that I've ever done, and I gotta do it again next week. The point isn't that is, whether that's useful or not. The point is, does the potential adaptation you can get from that training session match the amount of stress you just applied? And can you tolerate that stress? So again, we think that using uh, subjective feedback can be very important here, both in selecting load and then also managing session RPE. All right, that's a wrap on our question and answer from our July 2019 seminar held at Elevate Barbell in Fort Collins, Colorado. We'd love to have you at one of our upcoming Barbell Medicine seminars. Head over to the Eventbrite link in the description below. Finally, head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast. Share it with a friend. It really helps build our audience so we can bring everyone the latest nuanced information with respect to health and fitness. Thanks again. We'll catch you guys next time.